0: Good morning. morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 is where we're going to pick up at. Our Lord Jesus loved to teach in parables. And so in Matthew 18 and verse 21, a question by Peter brought about the opportunity for Jesus to present the parable of the unforgiving and unmerciful servant and peter's question which you can see up on the screen his question to jesus is our question today in our series of sermons entitled questions from the bible and so here it is lord how often shall my brother sin against me and i forgiving up to seven times two questions in one here but what caused Peter to ask this question in the first place? The Bible doesn't really say, but it may well have been that Peter thought there was a limitation on something Jesus had said earlier. If you go back here in the same chapter in verse 15, Jesus had said, If your brother sins against you, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Which means what? You don't have anything to do with him. You disfellowship him. You don't fellowship with him anymore. Why? Because you're mad at him? Because you want to kick him out? No, the purpose of church discipline is so the person that is being disfellowshipped will feel ashamed and want to return. The purpose of church discipline is always, always restoration of that person to the body of Christ. And hopefully that will shock them and make them ashamed of their actions and bring them back. But it may well be that these admonitions from Jesus put Peter to thinking about how often he should forgive his brother. I mean, if I've got to go to him if he wrongs me, and he doesn't listen, and I take a couple more back, and he doesn't listen, and so I tell it to the church, and he doesn't listen. I mean, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? And he generously came up with the number seven. Lord is seven times enough. Peter probably felt he's going to be complimented by the Lord because he was, he was willing to forgive more than most people. You see, the Jewish rabbis at that time taught that a man was to be forgiven three times, but no more. They based that on Amos chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. And so the Jewish rabbis believed that God himself only forgave so far and then no more. And so no doubt Peter knew what the rabbis taught. And if asking Jesus if seven times were enough, he had doubled the amount and even thrown in one more for good measure. So he probably expected Jesus to compliment his generous spirit. He was probably looking for a pat on the back thinking, look what a wonderful fellow I am, to be willing to forgive someone seven times, not just three. Well, Peter was indeed willing to forgive, but his mistake was that he was measuring himself by a human standard rather than a divine standard. And folks, anytime we do that, we always come off looking better than what we really are. Because we always find someone to compare ourselves to that, that's less than or, or worse than. Then we make ourselves look good. But Jesus answers Peter and says, I don't say to you seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now did Peter take out a pencil or something and say 70 times seven, seven times zero, seven times seven? No. And does Jesus mean 490 times, but on the 491st time, you don't have to? Well, of course not. What's Jesus saying here? When it comes to forgiveness, there's no limit. There is no limit. A Christian should always be ready to forgive. But that sets the stage for the parable. And the basic fallacy of Peter's question is that it assumes that if we forgive someone without limit, always forgiving, then that, means, that takes away from us the right to seek vengeance. It takes away the right from us to, to demand justice. But as we go through the parable that Jesus teaches, God demands that we'll always be willing to forgive, because we never possess the right for vengeance or justice in the first place. We don't have that right. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Not me or you. So let's read the parable beginning in verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves... When he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. He seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you. If each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. There is really not much in the parable itself that needs explanation. The king called all of his servants in to settle accounts. He found that one of them owed him 10,000 talents. Now you need to understand what a fantastic sum of money that represented. So we're going to do a little math this morning. All right? One day's salary equaled one denarius in that time. You would work all day, you would receive a denarius as your pay. And you would get that each day. It was the custom you paid at the end of the day. You didn't wait for the end of the week or whatever because people had to live day to day at that time. So you'd get paid one denarius. It took a hundred denarii, a hundred days of work to have a mina. It took 60 minas to equal one talent. So if this servant were a common day laborer, he would have to work at least 100 days to earn one mina. Multiply that by 60, he would have to work 6,000 days to earn one talent. 6,000 days of work. For one talent. But he owed his master how much? 10,000 talents. So what is 10,000 times 6,000? <laughs> I appreciate your efforts, okay? And the answer is 60 million days. It would take him 60 million days to earn 10,000 talents. So, you take 60 million days and divide it by 365 days in our year, and he would have to work just shy of 164,384 years. Do you get some concept of how great a debt this was? But let's put it into today's dollars. Let's say, for instance, this common laborer could earn as much as $20 an hour for an eight-hour day. Okay, 20 bucks an hour. So in that eight-hour day, his denarius would represent $160. In 100 days, he could earn $16,000. In 6,000 days, he could earn $960,000. But since he must pay 10,000 talents, he has to earn $9.6 billion to pay back his master. Did you ever stop in a parable like this and try to figure that out? Can you understand the fantastic sum that this man owes? A fantastic sum of money. There was simply no excuse for a man to rack up a debt like that. I mean, this man's debt was larger than the national budget for four different provinces of that time. For Colossaria and Phoenicia, Judea and Samaria. All four of their national budgets combined didn't equal that much. How did he get that much in debt to his master? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Most scholars believe this man was a financial agent or a minister of state through whom the royal funds flowed, and that he's probably skimming off the top. He's embezzling the money. And that might make it possible to have incurred such a large debt. But the point is what? This debt is unpayable, right? There's no way in his lifetime that this man can pay this debt off. So in verse 25, the man says, but it says, but since he did not have the means to repay, you think? His Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. How much of the 9.6 billion do you think he still had? The parable almost makes it sound, since there's like he doesn't have anything. But this selling him for repayment was according to the law of Moses. Exodus chapter 22, the first three verses. It says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun is risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Now, notice what the man says in verse 26. It's almost humorous. It's certainly ludicrous. He says, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. No, he won't. $9.6 billion, 10,000 talents. There's no way, and he knows it, and the king knows it. Now, there's something that you need to understand about parables, The parables of Jesus are true-to-life stories. They're just stories taken out of the secular world that everybody would understand stories that are true to life. The people of Jesus' day would have understood what he was talking about. Many of them would have witnessed or experienced what he was saying. In this particular parable, the people would all know what a king was, and they would probably know who their king was at that time. They knew that kings had servants. They knew that the king's servants had jobs and responsibilities and obligations to fulfill for the king. They would have understood the concept of a servant being called to give an account of his stewardship, just like in this parable. So parables were true-to-life stories. But there's always a point in a parable where all of a sudden you are dumbfounded. You just can't believe what's taking place. Let me give you an example. Flip over three chapters to Matthew 21 and verse 33. This is the parable of the landowner. And listen to these words. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Does that not dumbfound you? I mean, if they've already killed two groups of servants, what makes them think that they won't kill his son? He thinks they'll respect him. No, they won't. They'll kill him too. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. But again, aren't you dumbfounded that this man thinks, well, I'll just send my son. That'll show him. No, it won't. They won't respect him. You got to be kidding, man. What are you doing sending your son? But here's the point. In a parable, when you move from true to life story to dumbfounded, that's when the grace of God and the love of God Has entered the story. And don't miss that. So, in this parable, the landowner, who's playing the part of God? The landowner is. The son represents who? Jesus. And God sends his son to the vine growers to receive what was due him. And the vine growers threw him out of the vineyard and killed the son. Was Jesus killed outside of the vineyard? Outside the city, outside the walls? Sure. Now back to Matthew 18. Notice verse 27. The Lord of that slave that owed him 10,000 talents, 9.6 billion, if you want to think of it that way, the Lord felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. What? He forgave the debt? 9.6 billion, he just erased it? How could he do that? Is that not dumbfounding? And again, this is where the grace of God and the love of God enters the story. Who's the king in this parable? God is. All right. Who owes him 10,000 talents? You do. And so do I. Can we ever repay God for our sins? No. There is no way in our lifetime we could ever pay God for our sins against him. So what does God do? He has compassion on us. And through Jesus, he releases us and forgives us of the debt. Praise God for that, right? Now remember that Peter had asked him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And... Again, he's probably thinking he's being very generous, going way beyond what was commonly taught in that day. And after the seventh time, maybe Peter thinks, okay, after that, I can seek vengeance and I can demand justice. So let me ask you this question. How many times in your life have you sinned? Has anybody here kept track? No. There is no one here this morning that could stand up and give a correct answer to that question. Aren't you glad there's not a debt clock like the National Debt Clock in Manhattan, New York, that shows that as a nation, we're over $33 trillion in debt? And you can, you can see a, on, on the internet a live picture of that debt clock and just see the numbers keep rolling up and up and up. Aren't you glad there's not a sin clock, a debt clock like that, that would keep track of our sins? I'm 65 years old, So let's imagine for a moment that I started sinning at the age of 10. Probably was before that, but we'll use 10 as a nice round number. So I've been sinning for 55 years. Now hopefully there have been days when I didn't sin. But let's say that I sinned once every three days. Well, that'd be 122 times per year, times 55 years. That would be 6,692 sins. Now, if I sinned once every other day, that'd be 182 times per year, times 55 years, and that would total 10,037 times. But if I sinned every day, once a day, that would be 20,075 times I've sinned. And if I sin more than once a day, well, you can just see how the number escalates. Now, if I have sinned 20,000 times in my life, How many times should I expect God to forgive me? Up to seven times, Peter? If that's the case, I'm toast. I'm lost. I'm going to hell. I have a feeling that I won't be alone. We're all lost with no hope, if that's the case. But the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Aren't you glad that the grace of God and the love of God enters your story? And listen, God's not reluctant to forgive you of your sins. He very much wants to do that. But first he needs to make the sinner aware of just how much he's being forgiven. And when a sinner sincerely turns to God and accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior... God is glad to respond immediately and generously with forgiveness. And then we start out brand new again with a clean slate and the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. That's biblical justification. That's a central doctrine of our Christian faith. But then the parable shows a drastic contrast between the mercy of the king and the lack of mercy on the part of the one forgiven in verses 28 through 30. Back to the right page here. That slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves that owed him a 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down, began to entreat him, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So this man takes his debtor by the throat in Greek and Roman custom. A debtor was taken by the throat and brought to court to stand trial. The Greeks spoke of choking the life out of a man. They meant by it that they were making him pay his debt. And so this man grabs his debtor and says, pay what you owe. And since the man couldn't, he pleads with him and says the same thing that that man had said to his master with a 10,000 talent debt have patience with me and I'll repay you. But he was unwilling to do so. And he goes and throws this man in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Now if a guy's in prison, how's he going to make anything to be able to pay back the guy that he owes? This unmerciful servant expected from others what he didn't expect from himself. And how easy it is to, to see the failures of others and turn a blind eye to our own faults. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7, the first five verses in the Sermon on the Mount? Something about a man with a big plank in one eye need not be so concerned about a speck of sawdust in his brother's eye. And so Jesus deliberately provokes in us this sense of outrage at the abusiveness and the lack of mercy on the part of this ruthless, unmerciful servant. And when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. Came, reported all of it to their master about what had happened. So summoning him again, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And the Lord moved to anger, turned him over to the torturers. So in essence, the king says to him, does my example mean nothing to you? His question expects a yes answer. The king's mercy should have set the example for the servant. The servant should have done the same. And the question of verse 33 is the whole point of Jesus' illustration. And so the story ends with Jesus saying, so shall my heavenly father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. You know, one of the biggest obstacles to our salvation may take place after we become a Christian and not before we become a Christian. And I'm talking about what you do with the forgiveness that God gives you. When you know that Christ has died for you and that God forgives you, what influence is that going to have upon your life? Because that's the question on which your ultimate salvation hangs. Do you remember... The words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, he's teaching his disciples the model prayer. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said, okay, pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And in the midst of that prayer, he says what? Forgive us our debts or trespasses. How? In the same way that we forgive those that trespass or sin against us. In the same way and to the same degree. That's what we're praying. And at the end of that prayer, the conclusion of that prayer, Matthew records these words of Jesus, where Jesus says, For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Our salvation can hang upon whether or not we are willing to forgive others. You see, Jesus is telling us that love and mercy and forgiveness, you can't measure that in numbers. The state of one's heart, one's readiness to forgive, one's longing for the restoration of his brother, one's hoping for renewed fellowship, you don't put numerical values on that. You don't try to tally that up. You might as well ask, how often must I love my wife? How often must I love my children? How often must I love my husband for you women? You might as well ask that as to ask how often must I forgive? And in light of the parable we've just looked at, Jesus' answer might be paraphrased this way. How many times should you forgive others? As many times as it'll be necessary for God to forgive you. Because God himself doesn't keep score the times he shows us mercy and forgiveness. And we shouldn't keep score on others also. If God kept score, who could stand before him? Nobody here. There's nothing that brings us more into harmony with the character of God than to forgive and do good to those that have injured or wronged us. And the only way God's forgiveness is limited It's by our own forgiveness of others. As a husband, I'm held to my wife by her forgiveness. As a father, I'm held to my children by their forgiveness. As a friend, I'm held to my friends by their forgiveness. And as a Christian, I'm held to my Lord by His forgiveness. Forgiveness says our relationship is more important than any offense that you have committed against me. And at the close of his earthly ministry, Jesus demonstrated what forgiveness really means because the supreme demonstration is the cross. He shed his blood in order to forgive us of our sins. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 26, verses that we often hear read around this table where Jesus says about the cup, take, Drink ye all of it, for this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for many. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. Like I said earlier, I don't think there's anything in this parable that we can't understand. Is it difficult to do? To forgive others without limit maybe so is it any harder than it is for God to forgive us of our sins I don't know what you want to do with this today as far as making a decision but it's decision time now and I just pray that we'll understand how much the love of God and the mercy of God has come into our life story is our debt bigger than 10,000 talents? I don't know how you put values on sin. Sin is sin. We need forgiveness. We didn't deserve it. We could never pay it back. But the Lord was moved to compassion and forgave him all the debt. And he'll do the same for you if Christ If Christ is your Lord and Savior, if you need him today, you come right now as we stand and sing.